Thank you for coming this morning. We're down to the real narrow end of this class. And uh, I've still got to have my, my time with David Fleming and Stephen Trammell and Wade Liberator to discuss where at least, uh, if they'll let me keep teaching, where I'll teach uh, uh, when this series is over. Um, I've taken some suggestions from a lot of you folks, and I was going to put it out to bid, but so far I only like one of the suggestions. <laughs> so until someone comes up with a better one, we're not putting it out to bid. Hi, Dale. Um, what we're going to do is, is, at this point, barring something unforeseen, is do a, a fairly intensive study of the Apostle Paul. And so we would study not only his life and things we can know about him through um, other scholastic means besides simply reading the Bible. You know, what does it mean to have been from Tarsus, to have been a Roman citizen? What can we put together to have studied at the feet of Gamaliel? What did Gamaliel have to say? And what did he teach? And what was the difference between his school and the school of thought of Hillel? And, and things like that we could study. But then we'll study what Paul taught. Um, uh, and we'll either do it by a very careful examination of his writings in some sequence or... Um, more likely right now, we might do it by ideas. You know, what was Paul's teaching on, on, on sin, on God, the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the, the nature of salvation, the, the worship in the church, uh, uh, things like that. So that's what we're looking at right now. And, and we're not set in stone, and I haven't gotten an okay from our pastors here, but uh, that's the direction that I'm, I'm looking. So if you feel strongly another way, or if you're looking for a good excuse to bail from this class, uh, uh, that might serve uh, either end. But uh, let me know if you've got something else. I also want to thank, and we'll get to the class in a moment, but I sent this lesson out to a lot of different people this week. And we have a lot of folks in here who have some charismatic um, history in their, their lives or their families. And, and uh, I want to thank uh, people. I haven't gotten the okay to use their names, so I won't. But I want to thank a lot of the folks who've helped out to make today's lesson a better lesson. We are in part two of what we started with last week is the Holiness Pentecostal movement. And we made it through the Holiness part, but not the Pentecostal part. So this week, our goal is to get through Pentecostalism and the Charismatic movement. And uh, that's our goal. We start with the question... Who are those Pentecostals and Charismatics? Uh, you, you, you might, uh, some he call them holy rollers. Some think, oh, they must be the ones on TV that use two or three syllables when they say Jesus' name, uh, extra syllables. And they're folks that some make fun of. They're also folks that uh, have some very genuine and sincere hearts for God and a desire to serve Him and a very holy life that, that uh, I admire and respect. Like most any other religious group we've studied, you get the whole spectrum when you get involved in it. And, and so um, we have that in the Pentecostal movement. And we're going to discuss who the Pentecostals are and who the Charismatics are this morning. We also are going to discuss when, when did they start. Uh, I, I am tracking them as a movement that started in the 1800s. But much like the Churches of Christ and the Restoration Movement churches that we discussed a few weeks ago, if you go to the Pentecostals or you go to uh, um, uh, some within that movement, they will say, please don't say we started in the 1800s. We didn't. We are Pentecostals because we started at Pentecost. And they would chart the ebb and flow of the faith. And they would claim that they, by and large, a good deal of them are not 
a denomination. They are non-denominational. They're merely a manifestation of the church that has been around for 2,000 years and should not be deemed to have started in the 1800s. So um, with that as, as a backdrop to it, uh, uh, we will proceed to look at them. I'm not looking at them saying, okay, they started in Pentecost. In that sense, we've been studying, if you want to say that, the Pentecostal movement for the last two years because we started at Pentecost here. But more directly, what I'm saying is, is if you go to a Pentecostal church today, where did it come from? How can we trace back who started that church and how far back can we go? And in that frame of reference, we're going to be talking today. Uh, One of the hallmarks of the Pentecostal church is speaking in tongues. And so when you try and address when the Pentecostal church started, one of the the logical questions that that is asked is a, a relevant question all the way around. Did speaking in tongues survive the early church? In other words, we know in the early church that there was speaking in tongues. We know it was happening on Pentecost. We have that history. We read that in Scripture. We have that in Acts chapter 2. Did it survive? When I started teaching church history, one of my friends who is a a Christian, uh, a buddy of mine, said he was going to be interested to read the lessons because he wants to see when it was that the miraculous died out. And I said, now you've assumed it died out. And he said, I know it's died out. And I said, how do you know? He said, because I've never had a miracle. And I said, well, that might even depend on how you define miracle, which is a fuss we're going to get into, not a fuss, uh, an interesting perspective I hope to get into when we deal with C.S. Lewis. He wrote an excellent book on miracles that we'll be looking at, hopefully, before this class ends. Not this one, but before the year ends of this study. Did speaking in tongues survive in the early church? Uh, Pentecostals will by and large say absolutely and they'll say you can go back through 1900 years of history and read about it I've put some of the citations in the footnotes of what Irenaeus said in the 100s of what Tertullian said in the late 100s early 200s what Novation said in the 200s what Ambrose said in the 300s Augustine writes about it in the 400s you can go all the way up through the Reformation movement and have people talk about the presence of speaking in tongues within certain aspects of the church. So we don't have a historical record of it dying out, but we do, we do have historical accounts of it occurring. Now, how complete are those accounts? A lot of people will look at them and, and there are arguments that can be made about how valid each of those accounts is. And so it's a real give and take struggle for a historian to try to put together. But I've given you the sites. You can go back from there. Do your own research and put it together how, however you think it belongs. Along with the, the, the Pentecostal view that speaking in tongues have been around for 1900 years, there are other people who say, no, speaking in tongues never survived the early church. And the two scriptures most typically used for this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and Acts 8, 14 through 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says the following, Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. For now we know in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. And there are some who believe that the, when perfection comes, um, uh, teleos in the Greek, when the mature or the perfect comes, then 
tongues will be gone. What is that perfection? Most scholars believe it is the, the end of times. It's when Jesus comes again. It's when we know fully as we've been fully known. It's when we uh, no longer know in part. It's, it's, uh, that's what most scholars think. But there is a, 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 a channel of scholars who believe that the perfection was the New Testament. The completion of Scripture. And so that once you have a completion of Scripture, you no longer needed tongues. And a completion of Scripture is full knowledge. And so those who believe that say that is evidence that speaking in tongues would pass away once Scripture was completed. The Acts 18 passage that these scholars use who argue for this position is the one where Philip... Now Philip, remember, was not an original apostle. Philip was one of the the folks who were selected by the apostles along with Stephen and others to help minister to the early church. But there came a time where Philip was going, went to Samaria and preached to Simon the sorcerer. And those folks were baptized in the name of Jesus. And the apostles back in Jerusalem hear that the, in Samaria the gospel is being preached. And so the apostles send two apostles to lay hands on those who had been baptized but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and the question is raised, why didn't Philip just lay hands on them? And the idea was that the apostles themselves had to do the laying on of hands to dispense the Spirit in some way where the miraculous could take place. And so once the apostles die out, there's no one left to lay hands on. And so that passage is used as well by those who say that spiritual gifts in a supernatural charismatic way died out at that point in time. That's one issue, but there are many issues that have to be confronted when you examine the Pentecostal movement. Another issue is, is what is speaking in tongues. And that's actually a, an issue that's generated several opinions. The passage that's used for Pentecostalism, which is the Pentecost passages in Acts 2, verse 4, where it says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Some translations will say gave them utterance. And when you read it in the Greek, the word for speaking in tongues is a word, uh, uh, the tongues part is glossolalia. And it means other languages. It's not the only word for other languages. There's also the Greek word dialectos. We get dialect from it. But it's one of the words that means other languages. And so if this were, let's make a deal, we could say, okay, you get to choose a door here. There's door number one and door number two. And these are the different views, by and large, of what speaking in tongues meant biblically. Door number one is the idea that these were languages that were human languages. But the people who were speaking in those languages had never been trained in them. It would be like me trying to speak to you in Swahili. I do not know Swahili. I've never known Swahili. And if I were to stand up here and teach this class in Swahili, I would be, in this sense, speaking in tongues. I would be speaking in a language that's not my own. You with me? That's door number one. Door, door number one is based on the scripture in Acts 2 
when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in their own language. And there the word language is dialectos, in their own dialect. All these people from all over the civilized world were together in Jerusalem and they hear the apostles and each one's hearing in their own language. And so it's a language that is known but not trained or learned by the apostles. That's door number one. Door number two is the idea that the apostles are speaking in our tongues, at least, are unknown languages. Languages nonetheless, but as Paul uses a phrase in Corinthians, uh, tongues of angels. This is more akin to what we would uh, 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 also hear labeled as ecstatic utterances. Um, these are the things that, that don't, don't sit as a language known to man. And some people believe that these are the actual tongues. Now, in a sense, there's also, uh, uh, by the way, the passage here in Acts 2.8 is each of us hears them in his own native language. But others made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Which, in a sense, leads to a third door. The third door is both. Sometimes speaking in tongues is speaking in a language that's a human language that is known by people. But sometimes speaking in tongues may be speaking in an ecstatic utterance or an unknown language. And some even apply this ecstatic utterance or or tongues of angels or unknown language to the Acts 2 passage. Saying that there were two miracles taking place there. The miracle of people speaking in an unknown tongue... And the miracle for those who were believers of interpreting it in their own language. Those who were not believers were the ones who just thought it was gibberish. Hence the response, they've had too much wine and and making fun of them. So those are the three positions that kind of outlie this issue. And with that as a theological outline we get back to our question of when did they start and where did they come from? Here's what we've done so far in church history. We've charted through a Roman Catholic church that produced a Lutheran uh, uh, break-off, a Presbyterian break-off. The Church of England and the Episcopals uh, ran alongside the Catholic church and they spawned the Congregational Movement and the Methodist Movement. Uh, the Methodist, uh, uh, I mean the Baptists came from the Congregational Movement. Out of the Methodists, we went last week and looked at the Holiness Church. We're going to see this week that the Holiness Church produces the Pentecostals. And from the Pentecostals, we get the Charismatic Movement. And the interesting way our little chart flows on the PowerPoint is the Charismatic Movement then turns and infiltrates all of the other churches. And that's what we want to look at today. So we start with the holiness movement that we covered last week. And you'll recall if you were here last week, and some of you may not have been, the holiness movement was, was a, not just the idea of, hey, let's be good people, but holiness in the idea that, that there was a belief within certain aspects of, of Christian evangelicalism here in the United States principally. That you would reach a state of perfection. A second measure of grace. That the first measure of grace comes with your salvation. But for the, the, the dutiful and responsible and mature Christian. 
you reach a second level of grace or a second giving of God's Spirit that, that actually produces in you a sinless state, a sanctified state, where you are holy and pure and blameless. Okay? Now, that's what we call the holiness movement. And as we discussed last week, that produced the Church of the Nazarene and a number of other churches like that. Toward the end of the 1800s, the last 25, 30 years of the 1800s, you start seeing some shifts within holiness churches that start shifting towards what we now call Pentecostalism. And these came with the idea that there are actually three works of grace, maybe more. This first work of grace is salvation. You get saved. And then this holiness work of grace where you get perfected. But then there's this third work of grace where you get baptized with fire. And that's what uh, uh, Benjamin Irwin at least called it. He started the fire-baptized holiness church. And Benjamin Irwin took it a little bit further as he went through his life. He decided at first there's one baptism of fire where you just feel like you're burning up because you get the Spirit that much. But then he decided there's actually maybe two or three or four or five baptisms of fire, and he started giving names to them. There's, you know, like dynamite and then lidite and all of these different names. And I've put in the article, I mean in the um, uh, handout, a selection from an article of a holiness magazine where a woman was writing and said, you know, I experienced all five or six of these different levels you know, and then I, I, I got saved. And then after I got saved, I got sanctified. And then after I got sanctified, I got the baptism of fire and it was the dynamite. And then I got another one and it was the lid eye. And, and it goes through all of these different levels. And there were criticisms of this, uh, uh, understandably so. But, but the idea was being put out there that in addition to salvation, in addition to um, of sanctification... There is this special baptism of the Holy Spirit. A special, think of baptism in the sense of immersing. A special dispensation. That's not to say the Holy Spirit's not there when you're saved. That's saved. That's not to say the Holy Spirit's not involved in making you sanctified. But there is this special deluge or flood or immersion in the Holy Spirit that brings about certain miracles in your life certain gifts and this was the theory that was starting to be taught and it's really interesting pentecostalism if you look it up in a lot of books that are just kind of dealing on the surface they'll tell you frequently that pentecostalism arose uh, arises in 1906 at the azusa street mission in los angeles and it's since been torn down but it was not torn down until after cameras had an opportunity to take a picture so that is a, a picture of the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles and this is considered by some in the movement the Jerusalem of the Pentecostal movement you remember Pentecost took place in Jerusalem and it was in Jerusalem that it spread that Christianity spread out to the world Pentecostalism is seen as occurring in the later church in Los Angeles, that was the Jerusalem from whence it spread out all over the world. And so we have uh, that. If you look at the actual staff, if we can use that word, of the Azusa Street Mission at the time, here's a photograph. 
And the most remarkable part of this photograph to me is a fact that was actually true of the movement itself in Azusa Street. This movement in Azusa Street, I'm talking thousands of people every day coming. Uh, the LA Times writes it up for the miracles that are taking place there. Uh, thousands, I mean, people are coming from all over the world as the rumor spreads to go to Azusa Street for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's supposedly taking place there in a special way. And so you look at the people behind it and it's remarkable in two aspects for me. First aspect, you'll notice there are men and women. And within the Pentecostal movement, women take just as much a leadership role, just as much a teaching role, just as much a pastoral role as men do. Based upon the Pentecostal injunction that it's both men and women that will dream dreams and have visions and, and serve and all. And so you see the men and women in this photograph. The other remarkable thing is that it's interracial. The church was not a big interracial body in 1906. Azusa Street broke racial barriers, not just between black and white, but between brown, uh, between Asian. It was totally across racial, every racial boundary. That was there. Very remarkable. The leader was this gentleman seated right here front and center. His name was William Joseph Seymour. And William Joseph Seymour had, uh, here's another photograph of him. William Joseph Seymour had been born to parents who were slaves, former slaves, in Louisiana. Baptized a Catholic, but with his family moved and started attending a Baptist church. And then in his 20s, went up and, uh, to the Ohio area and learned the holiness movement and became a holiness teacher. From there, he moves to Houston. Houston plays extremely high in the history of the Pentecostal movement. Um, it was in Houston where he studied under a fellow named Charles Parham. Parham probably is the way he said it, but I say Parham. Because I like the way it sounds. And he's not here to correct me. So Charles Parham um, uh, was a fellow from Kansas who was a holiness preacher who decided in his preaching that there was this follow-up baptism of the Holy Spirit that would come to the believers who really sought it and wanted it. And the evidence of when you were baptized with the Holy Spirit would be speaking in tongues. And so this is what Parham taught. Parham moved from Kansas to Houston and started teaching it here. There was a Houston revival. I had an opportunity to grab the newspaper on the way in. I don't know how many of y'all take the Chronicle. Um, but uh, I pulled one of the old Chronicles. Let's see. I don't know if y'all have this at home. You might want to grab it. This is from Sunday I don't know how well you can see it. That's August 13th, 1905. Yeah, some of y'all don't keep your copies that long. <laughs> but anyway, Houstonians witness the performance of miracles. You see that? This is it. This is the write-up in the Houston paper. Mysticism surrounds works of apostles of faith. 
speak in all tongues known to man weird scenes that are witnessed. Look at this. Among the languages. Let me see if I can blow that up a little more. Can you read that okay? Among the languages spoken by the professors of apostolic faith, the government interpreters have made investigation and authoritatively report that all known modern languages have been demonstrated, including 20 Chinese dialects. Then it talks about those who were healed. It talks about a few nights ago, scores of penitents who nightly gather at the altar had somewhat thinned when a low-browed young man who had knelt there suddenly cried out, This is something new. He later, in telling of his visitation, is said by a Latin scholar who attended to have burst into rhyme in that language in a couplet used by Virgil and to have portrayed a vision in language that would have done credit to many of the poets who wrote when the language of the city of the seven hills, that's Rome, was in the very flower and pink of its perfection. Now, I am not in the business of, uh, let's see, there we go, of questioning God's work. Um, But I am a lawyer, which some might say is per se questioning God's work. Um, (laughs) I hope that's not true. Um, But... I read things like this and the lawyer in me would love to have a chance to chase down some of this. And this was a time where anybody who went to school learned Latin. It was part of the course of school and you memorize things and that someone might be able to spout off a few words from Virgil would not be in my mind that different than someone being able to habla espanol even though they don't really technically speak it here in Texas because it's something that's engendered within the culture some. By the same token, I I, I would wonder about the government interpreters and and I would wonder about it simply from this perspective as as a cynical lawyer who reads it, that government interpreter thing is under this box entitled Apostolic claims so I wonder if the writer of this article is recounting what the folks are claiming the government interpreter said or if this person did first-hand investigation I got an email Friday or Saturday Saturday or Friday one or the other last couple of days I got an email from a friend of mine who said I really am disgusted at what you said in the Wall Street Journal. And evidently I was quoted in the Wall Street Journal on Friday or Saturday. And um, I guess Friday. So, uh, did I tell you I got home at 3 in the morning? (laughs) I think that was today. Um, And I wrote him back and I said, yeah, I was disgusted to read that now that you've sent it to me. That's not really what I said and that's not really the context in which I said it. It's, It's kind of been maneuvered to fit the tone of how the article should be reading. And uh, that's unfortunate because it's there and it's there permanently, but, but it's not what I said in the sense that I said it. 
You know, those words I used, but they cut and pasted from an entire paragraph to come up with it. And he said, yeah, I figured as much. So I, I read these articles with a little bit of cynicism, but also very careful because I never want to deny what God may do and I never want to put God in a box. Um, he, the box could not contain him. I would just be a fool for trying. So with that, you have this movement Seymour, by the way, oh, let me put it back together. So Parham is in Houston. He's leading this thing. He's teaching these classes. He's, 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 he's instilling this idea. Seymour comes to Houston. But Parham will not allow Seymour to attend because of the racial divide. Parham later in life, by the way, becomes a Ku Klux Klan leader. And which sort of adds to my cynicism of at least his state of perfection. Um, so, so Parham does allow Seymour to sit right outside the door and audit, if you will, the class. Seymour does. And Seymour learns this teaching that there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit that results in speaking in tongues and that speaking in tongues is the manifestation or the proof that you have the Holy Spirit in that sense. And, and Seymour takes this to Azusa, and he teaches it. And it spreads like fire. Um, in Azusa, they would tell you that the tongues that they were speaking there were both known and unknown language. There's the account of a fellow named A.G. Gar, who supposedly was speaking Bengali, the Indian tongue. And when he was told he was speaking Bengali, and that was the miraculous gift he had, he got his wife, they packed their bags, and they went to India to be missionaries. Found out over there that none of the people in India understood the Bengali he was speaking, nor did he understand the Bengali they were speaking. So he left India and went to Hong Kong and learned conventionally how to speak the Chinese dialect in Hong Kong and became a very effective missionary there. Um, uh, the churches at this point that all come to Azusa Street and the ministers and the people that flock there, they all go back to their separate areas. And you have literally hundreds and hundreds of different churches springing up out of this Azusa um, experience. The churches, many of them stay independent. And they just spring up all over. Some of the churches join forces together. And the assemblies of God start. And some of these other churches that become the denominations that are more clearly recognized as Pentecostal. And so the Pentecostal movement continues and continues. Now, I've left out. And one of my friends who, who was gracious enough to read the lesson and has a heritage in the Assemblies of God. She wrote me an email and she said, you know, the class would love to know about Quakers and Shakers. And I thought, yeah, I probably ought to put something in there. So I think I threw it into a footnote after I got her email. But I'm, I'm going to leave Quakers out of this equation because most Quakers at this point are, are far from Christian orthodoxy, if not agnostic. Okay, The Shakers are an interesting story in themselves. They don't have a Christian 
Christology in an orthodox sense. They, Shakers believe that Jesus was a man and that uh, um, the Spirit, God, came onto Jesus at the time of Jesus' baptism when the dove came down. So it's, it's a heresy. Shakers also believed in this idea of moving towards perfection, um, uh, but in the process, they thought that entailed absolute abstinence from any sexuality including if you're married. In other words, as of last year, there were four left. (laughs) They were keeping their own as long as adoption laws were in place for them to do it. But when the adoption laws changed and, and, and made it where religious groups could not basically maneuver the adoption system in America, they lost their biggest inflow of people. And so uh, not having any children and offspring, uh, there is Sabbath Day Lake in Maine is the last Shaker community. Now, you probably know Shakers. They're called that because the Holy Spirit would come on them. They'd shake. They'd dance. They're big into music and dancing. Big into shaking. Quakers were originally big into quaking. That's where they got their name Quakers from. It's true. The shakers were shaking, but they believed in a community communal lifestyle, a very simple lifestyle, and they built furniture to show it. And so you're probably familiar with shaker furniture, and I'll bet you're familiar with at least one shaker song. You're at, no, not shake, shake, shake. (laughs) Terry Lynn Horton, and she even starts doing the dance. No, let's see if I can find it on here. See if it plays. And I danced in the moon and the stars and the sun And I came down from heaven and I danced on the earth At Bethlehem I had my birth Dance then wherever you may be I am the Lord of the dance, said he And I lead you all wherever you may be And I lead you all in the dance, said he Now those lyrics are not shaker lyrics But the tune was a shaker tune Most people think that that came from Celtic or Ireland stuff, and when they sing it, they sing it at the Irish Baroque. No, it's a shaker tune. It's a shaker tune written in 1848 by Elder Joseph Brackett or something like that. The Lord of the Dance lyrics were added in 1963 by Sidney Carter. The original lyrics, the shaker lyrics, the song was called Simple Gifts, and it was like this. If this will work. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we are in the place just right, we'll be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, to turn, twill be our delight Till by turning, turning we come round, round. Um, The uh, fella, Sidney Carter, who put the Lord of the Dance lyrics to it in 1963 Changed the melody just enough to where he could copyright it But it's, he readily recognized that's where he got it from And that's where it came from 
Simple gifts is, of course, a reflection of the shaker terminology. So the shakers, and they'd dance. They'd all get together and dance. So it's kind of appropriate to change it to Lord of the Dance. But uh, that's, that's some of the shaker influence um, that Pentecostals in their history lessons will say, see, tongues never died out. The shakers were doing it. And that's more recent history within the framework of the Pentecostal movement. But be that as it may, at first the Pentecostals themselves drew generally from the poorer groups. I'm not saying that it wasn't otherwise, but they were the poorer people who came into the Pentecostal movement. That really does not change much, scholars tell us, until after World War II. After World War II, there are so many Pentecostals and there's such an economic boom in the United States that Pentecostals start growing in... in um, understanding of where their income is now they always by and large live simply i mean you go back to the roots of pentecostal movement and david fleming could not be a pentecostal preacher this morning because he had on a tie that was an extreme no-no that's like a sin he blew the whole perfection thing um but the pentecostals as they start i'll tell you one of the big moves was tv a pentecostal named oral roberts Made it big about the same time a Baptist named Billy Graham started using TV to, to reach out with the message that they understood was there. And Oral Roberts, uh, who later would become a Methodist for a while and then drop the Methodist again and go back to being a Pentecostal straight as opposed to a Pentecostal Methodist. Um, uh, he brings it into everybody's living room in the 50s and 60s with his TV. And it causes people, if not to become Pentecostals, at least to ask this question. Huh. Have miracles quit? Are there still miracles? Is there speaking in tongues? Is there the gift of healing? Does God still work miracles? And as people start to ask that question, are there still miracles? They start asking it many times within the framework of their own churches. And so you start finding experiences like this. David Wilkerson crossing the switchblade. Remember the book? And he writes up uh, about miraculous occurrences. And there are some scholars at Notre Dame that start reading it. And all of a sudden within the Catholic Church, there becomes a charismatic revival. They don't leave the Catholic Church and become Pentecostals, but they take into the Catholic Church a charismatic. And by charismatic, that word comes from the Greek word charismata, which means gifts. These are the spiritual gifts. Okay, so the charismatic movement is one that's named after the idea that, that there are spiritual gifts that God gives in miraculous ways to his people. And it starts infiltrating not just the Catholic Church, but the Episcopal Church, the Baptist Church, the Church of Christ, the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church. This becomes the modern charismatic movement. And as it infiltrates, not only does it teach that there may be spiritual gifts, but there's a freedom and a liberation that comes with that as, as people, if they don't speak in tongues, they at least seek to have the Holy Spirit inspire their worship. And along with the loosening in general of our very starched shirts, which happened in American culture in the 60s and that age you, you in the 70s you find a loosening up within those circles that are accepting these charismatic gifts 
of the style of worship, and you have developed a charismatic style of worship. Now, we have 10 minutes. I wanted 15, so bear with me. I want to talk about our points for home. Um, I worshiped at a charismatic church some when I was in uh, Bible college. Um, uh, I w- it was not something that was accepted readily. Uh, that's putting it politely. Um, uh, and, and there were a lot of people that would have been very offended that I went to one. So what I would do is I would go to two church services every Sunday morning. I would go to a regular one at a regular church. Then I'd go over to this charismatic church. Um, and so when I'd get back to school, because oftentimes our professors would say, where did you worship yesterday? And I would be able to tell them honestly, uh, Hillsborough Church of Christ or Otter Creek Church of Christ or something like that. And I wouldn't say Belmont. Uh, or something, which the Riddles know these, these churches and, and some of the people behind them as well. Um, and it caused me to really, I, I took a course on the Holy Spirit. I, I tried really hard to understand this stuff. Because my view is, I would like anything God has out there for me. I mean, if he's got speaking in tongues, that'd be pretty cool. Now, I would love to have the gift of healing. I would love. I, if I had the gift of healing, you'll know it. Because I'll be walking the downtown streets of Houston. And I'll go to the hospitals. I'll just walk up and down the aisle. Who doesn't have insurance? I can get you out of here now. <laughs> Praise God. You'll know. I don't have those things in my life that I'm aware of. I mean, I, I, did I take Greek? Yes, Years and years of it. Did I take Hebrew? Yes. Years and years of it. Latin? Yes. Years and years of it. But it wasn't a gift. It was a struggle. It was hard. Um, Really hard. So I sat down and I thought, okay, I want to understand this. God, help me understand this. And I started reading in John. And in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, we have Jesus' last speech, if you will, his last teaching opportunity with his apostles. And it's in these chapters where Jesus says he's going to send the Holy Spirit, that God will. And Jesus makes five statements about what will happen when the Holy Spirit comes. And I've put it into five. It's in five different places. You could number them differently. But for our purposes, there are five. And I want to give these to you, and I want to look at them for just a minute. The first is that the Holy Spirit will teach and confirm the relationship of Jesus to God, the Father, and the relationship of Jesus and us. This relationship is something the apostles did not understand. At the time Jesus is talking to them, they don't understand. Jesus says, how long have I been with you? You don't understand? Okay, Well, I'm going to the Father, and He's going to send a comforter. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, when He comes, is going to teach you. And He's going to confirm in your hearts and in your minds that I, Jesus, am in the Father. And that you are in me. And that I'm in you. And that's what Jesus says. He says, on the day the apostles received the Holy Spirit, quote, you will realize I am in my Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. That's one thing the Holy Spirit's going to do. Second thing the Holy Spirit's going to do is teach and remind about Jesus. If I had been one of the apostles and I knew it was Jesus' last session, or even an early session, I don't care which session it is, 
If I did not have a tape recorder going or a videotape machine, I would have had my share of pencils and paper. And can you go a little slower? I got it. Blessed are the meek. Did you say meek or weak? Meek. Okay. For the, I mean, I'd have... No, all right. I got it. I did, got some more paper. I'd have been making the notes. They weren't. They weren't. But Jesus says to them, don't worry about that because when the Holy Spirit comes... He's going to teach you and he's going to remind you these things. When we have Matthew's gospel, it's not because Matthew had this incredible memory. When we read John's gospel, it's not that John remembers how Jesus said it. The Holy Spirit is at work here. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Don't get hung up on teach you all things. That doesn't mean everything there is to know. It means everything you need to know. Okay? Three, the Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus. Jesus says this in the John 15 place. When the counselor comes, he'll testify about me, but you also must testify. Holy Spirit's not doing it alone. He's going to do it with you, apostles. Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus. Four, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus said it this way. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt, in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. You ever been convicted of your guilt and your sin? The righteousness of Jesus and the coming judgment? That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's the Holy Spirit working. The fifth and final is Jesus says the Holy Spirit will bring glory to Jesus. He will bring glory to me, Jesus said in John sixteen fourteen, By taking what is mine and making it known to you. Now those are the five. He'll teach and confirm the relationship. He'll teach and remind about Jesus. He'll testify about Jesus. He'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he'll bring glory to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say how he's going to do any of it. Jesus doesn't tell you how he's going to do it. Jesus isn't putting God in a box. Jesus is telling you what he's going to do. This is what the Holy Spirit does. There are lots of ways to get from here to my house. You can walk, you can jog, you can take a bicycle, you can drive, you can ride. You can be piggyback carried. You can go in a wheelbarrow if someone's willing to push you. Jesus is talking about what the Holy Spirit does. And what I did is I went as a young fella to uh, the New Testament. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to start there. And I'm going to read every time the Holy Spirit's talked about in the Bible. And I did. And I circled it. I want to tell you, every time the Holy Spirit's talked about, it fits like a hand in a glove. Those five. I mean, it's almost frightening how it fits. The first example we have after, afterwards, the very first example we have, of the Holy Spirit being used in this book after the Pentecost speaking in tongues. Exalted to the right hand. This is Peter preaching. Exalted to the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He poured out what you now see and hear. He says, so let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Number four, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Teach and remind about Jesus. Testify about Jesus. They were convicted. They were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? 
Next reference to the Holy Spirit on the next page. Chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked why he was here healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. This is testifying about Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't testify about himself. This is not testifying about Peter, who heals the man. It's, oh, you want to know how he's in? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that's how we know that was the Holy Spirit. Because it's bringing glory to Jesus. It's doing the very thing Jesus said it would do. Next one's on the next page. This is a great one. Here, Peter says, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. In other words, the Holy Spirit didn't only do this once Jesus died. This has been the work of the Holy Spirit throughout humanity. And when the Holy Spirit came upon King David, it was to bring credit and glory to Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit that caused John the Baptist to leap in Elizabeth's womb when Jesus came by. The Holy Spirit in all of the Old Testament's pointing to Jesus and the work of God in there. The Holy Spirit is about bringing glory to Jesus. It happens again. Let's see, right up here. After they prayed, there it is. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Filled with the Holy Spirit... They speak the word of God boldly. They go out and proclaim, who is the word of God? Jesus. That's what they're talking about. That's what they're doing. And it's clear from the account that's what they're doing. Go to the next one. Look at, uh, here it is. Peter's talking here. We're uh, um, at the persecution of the apostles in Acts chapter 5. Peter says, God exalted him, Jesus, to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God's given to those who obey Him. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit. Go back. There it is. When the counselor comes, he will testify about me. And you also must testify. That's be a witness. I'm a lawyer. You want to be a witness? You're going to testify. Have I got a witness? Amen. Okay, so I, that's it. I, Peter's echoing the words of Jesus. We're witnesses of these things. And ladies and gentlemen, my friends, it just keeps going on and on and on. I mean, it's Stephen gets stoned. Look what he does. When Stephen's about to get stoned, he says to him, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're like your father's. You always resist the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to resist the Holy Spirit? Well, they're not accepting the message of Jesus. That's how they're resisting the Holy Spirit. And you can read the book from cover to cover. And what I would urge you to do is don't spend your time and energy trying to figure out how the Spirit does His work. He's God. Let Him do it. 
spend your time and energy noticing what he does and praising Jesus for it. You know, you find, you know, when Paul talks about speaking in tongues in Corinthians, what Paul says is he sets up rules that basically say, you want to speak in tongues in church? Then it better glorify Jesus. He says, I'd rather say five words that someone can understand than 10,000 that they can't. Because the stranger comes in and he hears gibberish and he walks away and thinks that everybody's a nut. So if you're going to have tongues in church, you need to make sure you've got an interpreter. Because someone's got to say something in a way that people will hear and understand Jesus is, is being lifted up. It's never the experience that's exalted. It's the Lord that's exalted. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to pray for God to give you everything the Holy Spirit has, that's wonderful. But don't be praying for the experiences. Be praying for Jesus to be made real in your life. That's the real miracle. Be praying for a deeper understanding that the eyes of your heart, as Paul prays for the Ephesians, he doesn't pray, I pray that you will all have this great, incredible, miraculous experience, which probably you want to justify your faith. You just won't admit it. He doesn't say that. He says, pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened and enlightened so that you may know more fully him who's called you according to his grace. That's the goal. To be deeper in relationship to God and Jesus. And if he does that in your life through the privacy of your home or wherever you may be in, in, a, in a way that, that ministers to you through an ecstatic utterance or whatever, I'm not here to, to ever forbid that or stop that. What I am here to do is say God wants you in the hollow of his hand. He wants to draw you so close to him. And it's the experience of God and Jesus Christ exalted in that relationship that he's driving for. And let's don't lose track of that, please. Thank you for letting me be on a soapbox today. I love you and appreciate you. Pray with me. Lord, it is my prayer that your Holy Spirit will be exalted in every dark corner of this world. Not for your Holy Spirit, but for the work that your Holy Spirit brings. Because we live in a world that desperately needs conviction of sin. And righteousness and judgment. We live in a world that desperately needs the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we live amongst people. And we are people who desperately need understanding and assurance of our relationship with you. A quickening in our hearts and our minds of, of Jesus and, and, and what you have done for us, Lord. And it's that that we seek. And I pray that your spirit will have that ministry and work in all of us deeply and richly. And not just in us, but in the, the, the ways we go out into this world. May we partner with your spirit to witness the love of Jesus to our world. We pray dearly through the name of Jesus. Amen.